0: America is the greatest country in the world. How are you? Thanks for being here. Final hour. I um, want to get a bit intellectual here, but uh, I think this analysis is really important. And I think it's almost entirely right. I want to see what you think. So this is a clip here of Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, it maybe. And he's given a talk uh, with a member of the British Parliament, who we will also get to but they're at a big auditorium in London and they're talking about the rise of populism. And it's relevant of course in America because of Trump and in England because of the Brexit. Now these two gentlemen, their point of view is that populism is not a great thing, but they get it and they understand it. And they think there's a place for it, but they're still, they don't like it. But I want to talk about why it happens. And and we'll talk about, I really don't want to talk about Trump too much, but it, it's, it's because populism is bigger than Trump even. It, it, populism didn't happen because of Trump. Things happened that enabled Trump to step into this place. And I think that will make more sense after uh, this segment here. So I want to get into Jonathan's first argument here. Uh, let me give you a quick little background here. He says that when capitalism, there's a process here. So step one. When capitalism is introduced into a society, there is an explosion of wealth, and it's not just the rich getting richer; everyone gets richer. And when everyone gets richer, a generation or two go by, and people start getting rights. Right? People demand rights, or um, you know, they, they they want rights applied equally to them, or whatever. Okay, and this is good, right? Then what happens? And we'll pick it up here. Let's go 1255.
1: I, I've spent a lot of time reading the work of the, the psychologists and sociologists who create the World Value Survey. They survey, it started in Europe, now it's global, uh, every seven years. that You can see this, these beautiful maps showing the whole world and where they are on this two-dimensional value space. And so Sweden and Scandinavia in the upper right, that means they have their values are the most... Um, Uh, It's it's like freedom-loving, emancipative, that's the word, freedom or emancipative values, and they're the most secular rational, so that's Sweden. And then the bottom left, from my perspective here, bottom left is like uh, mostly African and Islamic countries that still have the values appropriate to an agricultural society that has no trust in government, that has no faith that there will be food six months from now. So it's very, very different sets of values. As countries get wealthy, they move up and then to the right. They move to that zone where Scandinavia is now. And that's a good thing, it's a wonderful thing. What happens is then everyone's values change and the next generation, they really begin to care a lot more about women's rights, gay rights, animal rights, human rights, the environment. So you get this very progressive shift in values. Okay, so with this sort of audience, I'm sure that all sounds great. So that's step one. But here's step two. Once you have these incredibly prosperous, peaceful, progressive societies, they do. The people there begin to do a few things. Um, first of all, it's not everybody who has those values. It's everybody in the capital city and the university towns. They all have these values. They're- okay, stop.
0: Stop here. Okay? This, you will remember, is exactly what we said after the election. In, in the weeks following the election, when everyone's doing the postmortem, what happened? We said the great divide in this country, and not only the great divide in this country, but the great divide in all of human history everywhere is city versus country I proved it a hundred different ways. But I think just to prove how long this has been a thing, we read an Aesop's fable called the city mouse versus the country mouse. Aesop fables were written in the year 500, or is it 500 BC? Maybe 500 BC. Hold on. Hold on here. 500. Yeah, but still 500, right? Long time ago, right? So there's always been this divide between city folk and country folk for as long as there's been towns and cities. So it's nothing new and it's exactly what's happening here uh, and in London, but we're gonna focus here. It's exactly what's happening, uh, what happened here, right? We have this change in values, but not everywhere. Let's keep going, 1256.
1: So if you look at our countries, you know, in America, we're like pretty retrograde in some ways, but if you look at our, those, our bubble places, they're just like Sweden. And that means that these people now think that, you know, Nation-states, they're so arbitrary. And, you know, just, I mean, just imagine, imagine if there were no countries. It isn't hard to do, <laughs> you know? Imagine if there was nothing, nothing to kill or die for. No <laughs> religion, too. So this is, this is the way the values shift. And when, so this is what I and others are calling the globalists, Like the new left-right is like the globalists and versus the nationalists. And so the globalist ethos is tear down the walls, tear down the borders, nation states are arbitrary, why, you know, why should my government privilege the people who happen to be born here rather than people who are much poorer elsewhere? And so you get this globalist idea, you begin to get even a denial of patriotism. Uh, the claim, there's some, hor- uh, horrible, there's some pictures going around uh, right-wing media now in the United States, protesters, anti-Trump protesters holding up signs that say patriotism is racism. So you get people acting in this globalist way inviting immigration spitting on the nation-state spitting on the country and people who are patriotic um and uh very opposed to assimilation when there is integration because that as we say in america on the people on the left would say that's cultural genocide
0: all right me stop here for a second so uh real quick aesop's fables it was 500 bc i agree with me um uh, everything you just explained right there is what's going on right isn't it inviting immigration. Now immigration's a natural thing, it's a good thing, but like what we're doing now is out of control, which we'll talk about in a little bit, the concept of out of control. But it's very different from immigration to what we're doing now, which is, "Oh, you're from a war-torn Middle Eastern country where we have zero background on your life and associations and you have no desire to be an American. Come on in." Like, what the heck is that? Very globalist. Barack Obama is a citizen of the world. He views himself as a citizen of the world. When he won the election in two thousand eight, he did a victory tour, just like Trump. Trump did a, little, a victory tour, right? Speeches, um, and Barack Obama gave his speech. His very first speech was in where was it? It was either it was either Mobile, Alabama. Or Grand Rapids, Michigan. I, Oh, no, that's right. Berlin. His first speech was in Berlin. And he opened his speech. The very first line, maybe the second line, was talking about how he is a citizen of the world, a fellow citizen of the world. And he said, our global citizenship binds us together. This is the president's ethos. This is his view of the world. This is why progressives find the concept of a wall so repugnant. Because there is no such thing as countries. We're all people. Patriotism is racist. Assimilation is cultural genocide. Nonsense, nonsense such as that. Okay, so you, I see this going on right now, right? It's globalism versus nationalism. All right, keep going. Now, there's one more thing he says here at the end of this clip uh, that that will make you upset, probably. Uh, don't get upset by it yet. We will explain. Final clip here. Twelve fifty-seven.
1: So this is step two, is you get um, wealthy, wonderful, successful societies that are so attractive to poor people around the world, you get a flood of immigration and they're met by the globalists who say, welcome, 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 don't assimilate because we don't want to deny you your culture. And this leads to step three, which is this triggers an incredible emotional reaction in people who have the psychological type known as authoritarianism. Now, it's a very negative term. Um, but there's a lot of psychological diversity in this world. There are some people who are attracted to the Leninist vision, the the John Lennon vision. There are other people who are more parochial, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, there are people who really care about hearth and home and God and country, and um, they are actually friends of of order and stability, and they're friends of many good things about civic life, but when they perceive that everybody's coming apart, the moral world is coming apart, that's when they get really racist homophobic uh they want to clamp down they want to restore moral order and if anybody here saw donald trump's acceptance speech at the republican national committee that's exactly what he said he modeled himself after richard nixon's 1968 speech a time when cities are burning there are riots and nixon came in law and order will be restored and that's basically what trump's whole speech was so this
0: All right, so it makes sense so quick recap countries uh become capitalist countries. They get more prosperous. Then people in the cities become globalists. No such thing as borders, countries, all that stuff. Uh, everyone come on in. All and the rest of the country says, whoa, 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 whoa. They react to that by becoming more nationalistic. That can be interpreted by people in the cities as being more racist and homophobic. Now, I know for a fact that that's not what conservatism is. Just a quick reminder, the bathroom bill, for instance, in South Carolina, I think they're doing it in Texas or whatever, but South Carolina specifically, where this all started, people who have the globalist progressive view look at you or me against this bathroom bill as a homophobic or transphobic person or whatever. No, I look at it and say, what are we doing? Like, (laughs) how is this a priority I have no job, our borders are completely wide open, terrorism is a threat, our country's falling apart, and you're telling me the biggest issue is what bathroom people can go to? So I'm against it, not because I'm homophobic, because I'm reacting against misplaced priorities. Also, conservatives did not pick that fight. Remember, and this is a perfect microcosm of how the globalists, the city folk, start something, and then conservatives, country folk, react against it. The whole transgender bathroom thing started because Charlotte passed an ordinance that said transgender people can't go to whatever bathroom they want. Then the conservatives in the state legislature said, Whoa, 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 Whoa. And, and tried to pass a bill that says, no, you can't do that. Right. Conservatives did not pick this fight. Republicans in, in South Carolina legislature did not say, Hey, you know, it'd be great if we just out of nowhere passed a bill that says transgender people can't go to whatever bathroom they want. That was a reaction to something that Charlotte did. See how that works so you have the globalists the city folk and then you got the people in the country the people in the country they believe in uh hearth and home god and country which by the way was yale's motto or yale yale's motto is for god for country and for yale which is ironic now because all those things or the first two are seen as negative narrow-minded things right the motto of yale is for god for country for Yale. well god well he doesn't exist Told, and then country for country. Well, a country shouldn't exist. So this is where we are right now. But I don't think build the wall was keep the Mexicans out as much as it was. Let's get things under control. And I want to explain more of that next, because I think that is really important, especially as people in the cities, which usually it's where all our media comes out of and culture is generally formed in, in, within the cities. They're all saying that build the walls, keep the Mexicans out. But it really, it's not. I don't think it is. It, it's, it's it's a reaction of what the heck is going on here. Let's get things under control. That's what it is. I'll prove that next. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network.
0: I want to make the argument here that the, the chant, build the wall, for instance, I'm not specifically talking about just this one thing, but all of Trump's populism, but just to pick one, uh, build the wall was not so much keep the Mexicans out as much as everything's out of control. We just got to get things in under control. I want to prove that here with Nick Clegg. He is a progressive member of uh, the parliament in England, and he's talking here about the rise of populism. In his context, it's It's the Brexit. But same thing with Trump here, and he says there's two main reasons why populism occurred um, here and, and across the pond. First, the 2008 economic crisis. Here he talks about that. Clip 1258.
2: I think it is impossible to exaggerate how angry that left yeah. our, millions of our fellow citizens, with totally good reason. You know, you you speak to folk who kind of say. Look, the bank has screwed up. You politicians screwed up. The regulators screwed up. And I haven't had a pay rise in eight, year- eight years. I and mean, that's the longest period of time for, for many, many people on low and middle incomes not to have a real terms wage increase, probably, well, certainly since the oil shock in the early 1970s, possibly mm-hmm. since the Second World War. So I think that sense of kind of, oh, God, you guys, you keep promising that things are going to get better. They don't for me. You screwed up in 2008. N- not a single bank has ended up. In this country, at right. least, behind behind Sorry. bars. A little bit different in the states. I think that's one massive proximate. I mean, I would go so far as to say, if two thousand and eight had not happened, I wouldn't be surprised if the Brexit vote might have gone differently.
0: Okay, I don't want to uh, I don't want to nitpick, but I think there's two things going on there, and I think there's a distinction worth making. Um, I don't think people were too upset. Now, hear me out. I don't think people were too upset by the 2008 you know economic crash and i mean of course, yes people lost their homes and it was disastrous for a lot of people and i don't mean to minimize it at all but i'm talking in the context of the lasting hatred of politicians and of government and elites i don't think it was the crash itself as much as the slowest economic recovery afterwards since world war ii right so, so it was it it was the crash, yes, but mostly it was the fact that the recovery has been pathetic. It's slowest ever, longest ever. The economic, the, the average economic growth prior to 1990, let me, let me reword this. For every recovery, so a recession happens and there's a recovery. For every recovery, the average economic growth of that recovery uh, was 4%. But for the last eight years, it's 2%. So it's the slow recovery that's grinding. I don't think people... I I think people will excuse a market correction or even more like 2008 was a little more nefarious than that. But it's the decade long recovery that that's grinding for people. And over time we lost trust, not only in specific politicians, but just in the entire institution of government itself. So, What caused the populism of today? The economic crash of 2008, no doubt about it, and the slow recovery after. But it's the one-two punch, and this is the knockout punch, uh, 1259.
2: And the second one, which then I think uh, compounded that sense of disenfranchisement and rage, was just the nightly spectacle on our television screens Of people pouring into Europe from these scary conflicts happening kind of in the in the the Middle East and we didn't know what's going on and where are they going and why can no one tell us how many they are and where. oh my gosh people are blowing themselves up and trying to kill people in Paris and Brussels that elicits such a visceral sense of kind of a lack of control which is why I think that the take back control refrain which you may know John was the very sort of pungent refrain for the Brexit case just resonated so much with people who just saw a system mm-hmm. which in the most elemental sense, like who's coming in and out of your community, was out of control. Um, I think those two things, conge- I mean, in many ways, when I describe it like that, I'm fascinated there were 48% people who voted for Remain um, because I think that was an incredibly heady emotional mix.
0: So the, what, what was Trump's... Uh Slogan, make America great again, right? Do you know the Brexit slogan? It was take back control. So you have the refugee crisis, which is a visceral lack of control, and the slogan is take back control. That's all that is. When we talk about economics, people see, you know, they can see their wages not going up, but there's so many different ways to interpret and describe economic. Issues. There's different areas of the country, different sectors, metrics, numbers. It's so hard to define and and have people really grasp economic issues. Because you could say, oh, a progressive could say, oh, immig- uh, unemployment's down, right? Unemployment rate's down. And then you come back, well, you're like, well, no, the, the labor force participation rate's the lowest ever. And they'll be like, oh, but the U16 or U6 number, you'd be like, oh, but the U12 number. It's like, what? But immigration, the refugee crisis, it's so obvious. It's right in front of your face. And as the member of parliament said, it's it's the most, in the most elemental sense, the government has failed. And it's the worst, worst part than that. Like, they don't even care. In fact, they want it to happen. That's the globalist versus nationalist view. Right? The globalist being like, come on in. And you have the nationalists saying, what? That's what the election was about. That's what the Brexit was about. And that's what Trump was about. And that's what leads to populism. I don't even think it's Trump himself. I think the times were right for a Trump-like person. And then Trump, of course, went to the plate and hit it out of the park. Mike Slater Show. Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On
2: the Blaze Radio Network.
0: divide in our country, divide for all of human history, city versus country. we talked about that a lot, I guess, in November, a little bit of December. <clears throat> um, now we're defining a populism a little more, what, 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 how that happens, how populism comes to be. Um, globalist versus nationalist, kind of the same idea of, of uh, cities versus country, which is left versus right, which is progressive versus conservative, right? different words to kind of describe the same concept. So we just described the the, the process, the, the three-step process towards becoming, uh, towards a populist movement that sets the stage for a populist movement that Trump was, of course, the leader of here. Now, on top of all that, I'm not going to repeat any of it, but on top of all that, you throw in some good old-fashioned smug. That's a great way to just throw a little bit of extra gasoline on the populist fire. You put in plenty of smug. I'll explain, but let me me back it up here. So the the best Christmas gift that my wife got me uh, this year was a uh, beautiful printout, like a calligraphy, not a printout, just someone someone handmade uh, a prayer from General MacArthur that he wrote for his son, who was born in uh, 1952. He was stationed in Australia at the time. And the name of the prayer is Build Me a Son. And so it's like, It's written out, beautifully framed, put up in the nursery. It's awesome. And at the end of it, it says, After all these things are his, so it lists like 20 things. After all these things are his, add, I pray, enough of a sense of humor so that he may always be serious, yet never take himself too seriously, and give him humility so that he may always remember the simplicity of true greatness, the open mind, of true wisdom and the meekness of true strength. Then I, his father will dare to whisper. I have not lived in vain. It's an awesome poem. Look for build me a son MacArthur. The part I want to talk about here is the, the open mind of true wisdom. True wisdom requires an open mind. And maybe this is a good time. Our first show of the new year to reemphasize the importance of keeping and open mind and keeping and, and hearing all opinions. The policy on this show has always been that every opinion is welcome as long as you have an argument that has always been our approach to the show. And from time to time, it's interesting. We have you know, callers or guests with different opinions and I will let them talk. And every time I do that, I get an email from someone criticizing me because I didn't shut the person down or or wreck them or whatever. What's like a clickbait? Ev- I didn't eviscerate them, right? Like all the clickbait headlines like, oh, th- person X eviscerates person Y. <laughs> it's like, so I didn't do enough eviscerating on the on the radio or whatever. That's not my job. You're not dumb. You can respond yourself as the person is talking. I want to hear them talk. I want to hear them out. I want to hear what they got to say. they're coming from. where they're coming from. I want them to hang themselves with their own rope. So I'm not going to cut them off. I see no benefit in that. Other than maybe it feels good to eviscerate someone or whatever. Anyway, the point is we can't be smug because that's the opposite of having an open mind, right? It's, it's, being smug is when you have a closed mind and then you look down on the person who has a different perspective. Nothing turns people off more than smug. There's a cartoon in The New Yorker and it's got a guy on a plane, right? Sitting in the middle of the plane and he's standing up and he's looking backwards to the rest of the plane and he says... These, uh, these pilots have lost touch with regular passengers like us. Who thinks I should fly the plane? And everyone's hands are in the air. And the analogy here is, of course, that we, the people, the dumb people, we don't want the, the, the powerful, competent, righteous leaders that we have today leading the country anymore. So it's better to just pick some random people off the street. Like, I don't know, Donald Trump to run things and it's going to go great. So electing Donald Trump to presidency is like a passenger flying an airplane. That's, that's what they're doing. Now the analogy is ridiculous. Trump may have no political experience, but to say he has no experience running things or running big things is wildly disingenuous. And I also don't think anyone has an inherent problem with the elite, as long as they're good. (laughs) Right, <laughs> does that, does that, honestly, that's a good, does anyone have a, any real problems with the elite, whatever that means? I'll make a I'll make an equally bad analogy as the New Yorker. I have no problem with Tom Brady being referred to as the best quarterback of all time. Okay, people can throw out different names here and there, fine. But I mean, listen, Tom Brady, he's in the running, right? A top top 10 quarterbacks of all time certainly, right? I have no problem with that being talked about. But I would have a problem if he was called the best quarterback of all time and he averaged 12 interceptions a game. <laughs> I'm like wait, hold on, wait a second. And 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 also of course if those 12 interceptions actually affected my life like politicians ineptness does. So the elite's not the problem. Like Tom Brady being the best isn't the problem. It's being the best or being referred to as the best when you're really bad. Like that's that's where the problem is. So being an elite been politician or whatever. Like that's not a problem. I don't care. But if you're in a co- incompetent elite, right? That's what it is. It's the incompetent elite that matters. And then to go back to my bad analogy, if we said, Hey Tom, um, Tom Brady, stop throwing interceptions. Well then we're criticized. Right? So to go to the New Yorkers, bad analogy, it'd be like passengers saying, Hey, uh, pilot, are you actually going to fly this plane properly? Like you say you will. You say you're a pilot, but you haven't taken off, or seems to be we're about to crash into that mountain. Like, like what? what are you going to fly this plane right or no? To bring it to the president, real life. Will you? Will will this plan actually decrease healthcare care premiums? Oh, I'm racist for asking. Weird. So the elites not the problem. It's the incompetence and then the smug. That follows. How dare you question me? How dare you question this? You don't know better. Et cetera, et cetera. It's the smug. And nothing will rile a person up more than being smugged on. And we've been getting a lot of that these last few years. So you get the whole populism uprising that we're talking about. Right? The economic crash. Things out of control. A couple different forces happening. On top of all that, you throw in a bunch of smug, it's over. Of course, Trump was going to win, which is why we said he was going to win a year before he won. I want to quote here from Anthony Bourdain. I really like Anthony Bourdain. I like his travel show. Uh, He's very liberal. Hates Trump. Hates him. He wrote, he did an interview the other day. Sorry, an interview. Uh, First, he's going off on PC culture. I'll start here. Contempt with which privileged Eastern liberals, such as myself, discuss red state, gun country, working class America as ridiculous and morons and rubes is largely responsible for the upswell of rage and contempt and the desire to pull down the temple that we're seeing now, which we just talked about. He says, I've spent a lot of time in gun country, God-fearing America. There are a heck of a lot of nice people there who are doing what everyone else in this world is trying to do, the best they can to get by and to take care of themselves and the people they love. And when we deny them their basic humanity and legitimacy of their views, however different they may be than ours, when we mock them at every turn, when we treat them with contempt, we do no one any good. And nothing nauseates me more than preaching to the converted. The self-congratulatory tone of the privileged left, just repeating and repeating and repeating the outrages of the opposition. This does not win hearts and minds. It doesn't change anyone's opinions. It only solidifies them and makes things worse for all of us we should be breaking bread with each other and finding common ground whenever possible. And I fear, I fear that is not at all what we've done. Perfect analysis there. One last thing, he goes on to talk about Bill Maher's show. The question was, what do you think of Bill Maher? And he wrote, insufferably smug. And really the worst of the smug self-congratulatory left. I have a low opinion of him. I did not have an enjoyable experience on his show. Not a show I plan to do again. He's a classic example of the smirking, contemptuous, privileged guy who lives in a bubble. And he is in no way looking to reach outside or even look outside of that bubble in an empathetic way. So let's not be that person. Ever. To go back to General MacArthur, let's always understand that the importance of the open mind of true wisdom. one 888 3393 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is
2: Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Thanks for being here. First show of the new year. Might as well end on uh, this note right here. I hope it's encouraging. Uh, I've noticed something the last few years. And no doubt you've seen it this year as well. This this first week of the new year. Uh, about resolutions. Now hear me out. I know you hear resolutions. You just tune out. But it's something like 92% of people don't keep their New Year's resolutions. So you got 8% of people who keep them throughout the year. Which is hypothetically low so it's gotten to the point where people don't make resolutions or or even laugh at the concept of making them uh, you, you I, I don't make resolutions what's the point they're stupid i never keep them ah and, and i think whenever i hear someone say that i don't want to be rude but whenever i hear someone say that i always think well that's not good like you should keep them I was listening to Adam Carolla's podcast the other day, and he he went on this rant because someone came up to him and said, Adam, you have the number one podcast in the world. You have stage shows and books and documentaries and movies, but that's because you're wired that way. (laughs) He said, no, 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 no. I am not wired that way. I rewired myself this way. And he went on this huge rant about how his parents are total deadbeats in every single way. And he talked all about his family going back a couple of generations. And he talked all about his life until he was 35 and how he got his motorcycle towed four times and was arrested because every ticket he got went to warrant. And how he was living with three other deadbeat guys in an apartment in wherever. And he was living in a back room, making no money, good working job to job and construction. And it goes on and on and on. And he's like... He looked around one day and he said, this is awful. I don't want to live like this. I need to rewire myself. So he looked at how he was wired and said, I don't like this. So I'm going to rewire. I need to change everything because I don't want to end up like these knuckleheads. So he started off with terrible initial wiring and then rewired himself. But it's so funny that someone would look at that and say, oh, you're just wired that way. No. He rewired himself that way. And my point is everyone has that potential and that's his point as well. You just have to want to do it. And that's what resolutions are. It's just a little rewiring and that's good. By my nature, I am unbelievably lazy. I'm super, super lazy. So last week I had off and, uh, it was my wife and I and my three month old. We did nothing. Like nothing at all. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So super lazy. Now we have a three-month-old, so we took care of him and basically just stared at him for all day. So it kind of worked out. It was kind of counted as something because we had someone to be responsible for. But if that was last year and there was no three-month-old, we would have done the same thing, just sit on the couch all day. I'm so super lazy. And I'm like, when I get a bill, I'm just like, ah, whatever. And I put it on the counter in a pile. I am wired to be a piler. I have piles of things, piles of papers. Right, my mom and dad always did. They had piles everywhere, all over the house. There were piles of papers, magazines, newspapers, and in the offices, they would have. My dad worked at home. He would have piles of of folders on the ground, just piles. That's my wiring. I had to rewire that, so I don't have any piles anywhere. But except for when I get, I have one pile. I've narrowed down to one pile. So whenever I get a bill, I throw it there. And then a couple months later, I'll get the thirty day notice and a sixty day notice and a ninety day notice. I throw it like that's horrible wiring, horrible, horrible wiring. I'm doing the best I can to fix that. And I have a bunch of terrible wiring and I've been able to change a lot of it. Right. I'm up up at four 30 every morning to show prep, work out at six, eat breakfast, do a little more show prep, go to work, go home, show prep for the next day. Right. But like, that's not in my nature. I'm lazy, but the reason people are like, it's, I think it's weird. I don't say the reason I think it's weird that people laugh at, uh, resolutions because everyone can get better. Um, me included, obviously like, not even close to where I want to be, and that should be true for everyone. Everyone should think that way. But I think it's this, it's like this weird, uh, you know, in our culture today, it's all like, oh, I'm born this way. Uh, it's just me being me. It's the real me, like that thing. It's it's the I'm proud of something that I shouldn't be proud of. I don't I don't get that. Like, if you're a procrastinator, which I am, instead of working to not be a procrastinator you people go the other way and say well i'm proud of being a procrastinator and make jokes about it as if it's a good thing so i don't i don't get that so i guess my point is here is your permission to make a resolution and keep it you can keep it you can do it there's literally nothing keeping you from being in that eight percent of people who keep a resolution all year there's nothing stopping you from doing that nothing at all you can do it as rob schneider says you can do it so Go do it. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Start out. That's my pep talk. It's the best I can do. But just think, you're not wired. Well, you are wired a certain way, but you can rewire. There's the permission. You can rewire. One, but you're so close to being perfect. There's not much rewiring, but maybe one thing. Mike Slater's show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.